God's Word now, and we'll see that actually much that we're going to look at this morning follows on from those, both that prophetic word and also from that passage of Scripture. Ephesians chapter 5. This is a passage that is read very often at weddings, and many times when we hear it preached on, it's about marriage and husbands and wives and how they are to relate to one another. But actually, as we read it again, we find that that is only the secondary teaching from this passage. The primary teaching is about God's uh, love for the church, and particularly the, the church as the bride of Christ. So we read this passage, verse 22 of uh, Ephesians 5. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body but he feeds and cares for it just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Over these last few weeks, we've been looking at one or two passages of Scripture in Ephesians, and particularly, we've been looking to see what the Word of God in Ephesians has to say about the church. And one of the things that I believe we've seen week by week as we've done this is that the church is still at the top of God's agenda. It may not be at the top of men and women's agenda. Not many people today would be willing to say, I believe in the church. When we talk to people in our open airs in Southwick Square and uh, introduce ourselves to them, begin to tell them that we're from Clarendon Church and that uh, we believe in the Lord Jesus. Some will say, I believe in God. In fact, I think probably the majority of people will say, I believe in God. Then we find uh, a lesser number of people will say, I believe in Jesus. But I haven't come across too many people who say, I believe in the church. In fact, the publicity that the church gets usually leads people to say, I definitely do not believe in the church. It's a dead loss. It's uh, something that uh, is a bit of a laughing stock. It's not something I can take seriously. But one of the things we've seen in Ephesians is that God takes the church very seriously. The true church. Not necessarily that which uh, men and women perceive to be the church. The trappings, religion, institutions, buildings. But the true people of God who are set apart, called out by God, 
who put their faith in the Lord Jesus, God takes that people, the redeemed people of God, the church, very seriously indeed. And one of the first things we saw in the very first passage that we studied in Ephesians about the church shows us, and this is an important thing, shows us that everything today, everything that flows from God's throne is for the church. Because it told us in Ephesians 1, 22 and 23, that Jesus had been placed over everything, over all rule and authority in the heavenly realms for the church. So that means that everything that comes from the throne of God, where Jesus is, is for the church. Now, in the last 20 years, things have been happening in our country. Some have noticed it, others have not noticed it. But something's happened in our country, and right throughout the world, there has been a, an amazing move of God's Spirit, an outpouring of God's Spirit. Not just in this country, in fact, we, in some ways, have only received a little of it. But throughout the world, there has been a mighty outpouring of God's Spirit. People have been experiencing God in a vivid, personal way, in baptism in the Holy Spirit. People have been coming into gifts, supernatural gifts of the Holy Spirit. So there have been healings, there have been prophecies, there have been mighty miracles. Because God has been pouring out His Spirit in the last 20 years. Years in which we've lived, most of us. And some have asked, why? Why has God been doing this? Why has the Spirit of God been poured out in this way, in sometimes extraordinary ways? Is it just for personal blessing? Of course, it is a personal blessing when this happens and you meet God in this wonderful way. But is that what it's all about? Or is it just so that little groups who like that kind of thing or have experienced that kind of thing can enjoy? I don't believe that either of those two answers is the right answer. I believe that what's happened over the last 20 or so years is that God has been pouring out His Spirit for the church. Not just for individuals, not just for little groups in midweek meetings or in homes, but he's been pouring out his spirit on the church from the throne for the church to make radical changes in the church. And that's how churches like ours was born eight or nine years ago. Lots of other churches besides. Because they realized that this outpouring of God's spirit couldn't just be pushed into one individual's life or into a little house group but it would mean radical changes in our worship as churches, radical changes in our leadership, changes in our evangelism, all sorts of changes for the church. God's been pouring out His Spirit in extraordinary ways in our generation for the church because He wants a church that is dynamic, filled with His Spirit. That's what He wants. He longs for that kind of church, not some dull, boring compromising institution. He wants a vibrant body of people. He wants a people who will be a mighty army. So he fills his church with his spirit so that they can be full of power to be a, 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 an army of God. He wants his people not just to depend on priests and leaders. He wants his people to be a functioning body. Everybody playing their part, having a role to play. So he pours out his spirit and that's happened. Over the last 20 years, there's been a rediscovery of the church as the body of Christ, with each person having his role to play. Lots of ways. Now, what I want to show you this morning from God's Word is that over these years that we've been living in, 
And it's not just over these years. God has been doing it through the centuries. But particularly over these years, God has also been pouring out his spirit on the church because he wants a beautiful, pure, radiant bride. Okay? That's the picture here. He wants the church to be a glorious, beautiful bride worthy of Jesus Christ, the bridegroom. Now, we're going to look very closely this morning at this passage of Scripture, especially Hebrew, uh, Ephesians 5, 25 to 27. So if you've got your Bibles this morning, I'd love you to have them open in front of you, on your lap, so that you can constantly refer back to this passage, and we're going to feed on God's Word, and we're going to learn from God, what God's Word says. Now, one of the things that we need to realize when we come to this thought of the church as the bride of Christ is that the whole of the Bible teaches us that from the very beginning, God has wanted to be able to call his people his bride. He's longed to be like a husband to his people, to have his people like a a wonderful bride. And we find that coming through in the scriptures in the Old Testament. Don't turn to it, but this is what we read in Isaiah chapter 62. God speaks through the prophet, and he says to the people, You will be a crown of splendor in the Lord's hand, a royal diadem in the hand of your God. No longer will they call you deserted, or your na- or name your land desolate, but you will be called Hepzibah and your land Beulah. And then he explains what those two words mean. For the Lord will take delight in you, and your land will be married. As a young man marries a maiden, so will your sons marry you. As a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so will your God rejoice over you. Isn't that a wonderful thought? God wanted to have a people who were like a bride, and he could be like a bridegroom to them, and rejoice over them, and enjoy them. However, the history of the Old Testament is a history of the people who'd covenanted, if you like, made solemn marriage vows to God at Sinai, a history of a people who'd made a solemn covenant to be the bride of God, yet they prostituted themselves. That's the very sad history of the Old Testament, that the people were faithful for a little while, and then they were unfaithful wives. The people just deserted God. They started to worship idols. They started to push God back in their priorities. They began to doubt God. And so God cries, he weeps again and again in the scriptures. We see his heart cry over his people because they've forsaken him. And that comes to its uh, sharpest focus in the prophet Hosea. Because the prophet Hosea's own personal life echoed God's own relationship with Israel. The prophet Hosea had a wife who was unfaithful to him. She went off and she actually became a prostitute. She sold herself to men for money. But God said, look, Hosea, you're experiencing experiencing what I've experienced through the years with my people. I love my people as a wife. I want my people to be true to me because I'm always true to her. But she's forsaken me and prostituted herself with other gods and forsaken me. But listen, Hosea, don't divorce your wife. 
You could easily divorce her. You could rightly divorce her. Don't divorce her. Go and search for her. Go and find where she's got to. When you find her, you'll find that she is at the end of her tether. She sold herself into slavery because of her prostitution. And I want you, instead of divorcing her, I want you to lavish love on her. I want you to buy her out of slavery and take her home again to be your wife. And by doing that, God was showing the prophet Hosea that that is how he wanted to act towards his people. Although he had every right to cut his people off, to obliterate them, to, to, to pour vengeance upon them, <laughs> nevertheless, God's heart of love was such that he reached out for his people and he still wanted to draw them to himself and he wanted to buy them out of the slavery they'd got into. But although that is God's heart, what God has hinted at in the Old Testament, we now begin to see coming to fulfillment in the New Testament. Because this is what God's heart yearned for, and this is what he was determined to have. Listen to this from Jeremiah 31. The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. A new marriage agreement, okay? The old one really has come to naught because this people have just been unable to be faithful to God. I'm going to make a new covenant. There's going to be a new marriage, new vows. It will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their wickedness and I will remember their sins no more. So way back in the time of the prophet Jeremiah, hundreds of years before Jesus, God declared that he was going to do something new and fresh. And he was going to make a people who would be a true bride, who would not forsake him, who would not prostitute themselves. A bride that would be a glorious bride, a beautiful bride for himself. Now that is the background for our verses this morning. Let's read them again. Ephesians 5. <clears throat> Husbands, love your wives. Verse 25 this is. Just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish but holy and blameless. I want us to look at this this morning. I want us to look at ourselves as the bride of Christ, this radiant bride that the Lord Jesus wants to have for his very own. And I want us to see how in four wonderful stages God makes us into a glorious bride. It doesn't all happen at, at once. Four wonderful stages that we can see in this passage this morning. And there were four stages of marriage 
at the time that the New Testament was written. And the four stages are this. Romance, betrothal, preparation, and wedding. All right? That's what we're going to look at this morning. Romance, betrothal, preparation, and the wedding. Now, let's first of all think about uh, the most (coughs) wonderful love story you can ever possibly hear. You don't need to go and get one of these soft, sentimental paperbacks from W.H. Smith's to get the most wonderful love story of all. You don't even go to the great literature. You don't go to the Shakespeare's for his Romeo and Juliet or even to uh, the Bronte sisters for their novels like Jane Eyre or Wuthering Heights. There is nowhere else that you can go this morning to get a love story, a romance, like the one that we read about in the scriptures, as far as God setting his love upon the church. This is what we're reading in our verse this morning. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. This is the most amazing romance. If you like romance, this, my dear friends, is the most wonderful romance. It may be that you've never been involved in romance yourself. It may be that there have been great disappointments even in marriage for some. It may be that as we hear about so-called romance on the, uh, the radio and on the television and in books, you may find that you cannot identify at all with that. Your own experience may actually leave you far short of that. On the other hand, you may identify with it. But whether you do or not is immaterial because every single one of us is involved in this romance. Every single one of us. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. There are two amazing factors about this. In the time of the New Testament, as far as Eastern marriages were concerned, dowries were paid. We don't do that these days. Although I suppose there's a fair amount of expense involved in getting married these days. But there was a dowry paid. And the dowry that was paid not only reflected the wealth of the person who was marrying, the groom, but also reflected how valuable the young lady in question was, the kind of family she came from. And the word of God says here that Jesus loved and set his heart upon a people to be his bride so much that he was willing to pay the most amazing price. He paid for you and for me the price of his own life. That was the dowry that he paid. Nothing less. He didn't just come and woo a people with romantic words. He didn't send just wonderful Valentine cards. He didn't just give gifts presence. There was no way in which he was just going to be satisfied with that. The word of God says that God loved us so much that he sent us the Lord Jesus Christ. And Christ gave himself up for us on the cross. The most wonderful love story of all. All that Jesus gave up when he left the glory of heaven was for you and for me. It was for the church. All that he suffered and he he, uh, he received in his body on the cross was for you and for me, for the church. All that he achieved when he rose from the dead and ascended to the right hand of God was for you and for me. 
That is the most glorious love story of all, that Jesus suffered and died. But there is another fact that makes that even more astounding. We can imagine, and again we can see it in literature and in romantic literature, we can imagine that sometimes people will go to amazing lengths for the person that they love. Here is a, a man, and he loves this woman. And we often get portrayed in these stories this beautiful young lady that he loves. And he's willing to go to great lengths to express his love to. And she loves him, and she's longing for him, and she's keeping herself for him. And he gives his love to her, and he lays himself down for her. And perhaps he pays some great sacrifice to win her love. And we think, oh, that's a wonderful love story. This love story is greater than that. You know why? Because the Word of God says that this people that, God's, that Christ set his heart upon having as his very own bride and that he was willing to lay down his life for, this people were not in the least interested in him. Here, if you like, was a young lady who couldn't care tuppence for Jesus. Didn't want a single thing to do. Here were a people, says the Word of God, that were utterly rebellious. Not only that, sin had so worked in men and women's lives that this people that Christ loved and was willing to give himself up for were far from beautiful. Sin had actually distorted her features, made her ugly, far from beautiful, far from desirable. And not only that, this young lady, if you like, this people that Jesus sets his heart upon to have as his bride were far from pure, not a virgin by any means. In lots of ways had uh, um, stained herself with sin and with rebellion. And yet the word of God says that Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. You show me anywhere in the history of the world a greater love story than that. That God's own Son, the most precious one in the whole of the universe, should love such an unworthy subject and yet love her so much that he would be willing to die for her, to give himself up for her. You remember how in Romans 5 the Apostle talks about how on odd occasions we might find that somebody might lay down their lives for a righteous person? And that would be a great story indeed. But then he goes on to say in Romans chapter 5 and verse 8, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now it may be that some of you are focusing on that and it's coming clear to you for the very first time. In which case I would simply say to you, let God by his Holy Spirit let it sink into your heart and your spirit. And don't miss it this morning. Because God wants to include you, my dear friend, every single one of you here this morning, he wants to include you in that description of his bride. He wants you to be part of that beloved one. And he died for you. Not just for the next person behind you or beside you. He died for you. There is nothing in you that is inherently deserving of his love. The very opposite, actually. But he loves you. He wants you. He laid his life down for you. 
and this morning invites you to respond to him. It may be that you're hearing it for the umpteenth time this morning. Let it thrill you again. This week, just studying this again, just having time to dwell on it, to pray over it, to read it over again, has been such a thrill to my heart that God loves me so much that he came in the person of Jesus and he died for me. Even though I was unworthy, he laid his life down for me. He laid aside his majesty, just as we've been singing, and he suffered there for me. The romance, no greater romance in the whole of history. No bride has ever been wooed with such wonderful love as the church has been wooed by the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's the start. The starting point, as far as a pure bride for himself is concerned, is a very unpromising one. The starting point is of a corrupt, dirty, stained, unwilling bride. Oh, but God wants to make something beautiful out of uh, unpromising material. That's what the Word of God says. Now, the second stage we go on to, after the romance stage, is the betrothal stage. You might realize that uh, in New Testament times, they had betrothal rather than engagement. We get engaged to be married, and many times these days, engagement is a much looser arrangement. It's possible for people to be engaged several times. And that's the kind of culture that is ours, whereas betrothal was much more serious than our engagement. Perhaps our engagement needs to be much more serious. Betrothal was actual legal marriage. When you were betrothed to the young lady or the young man of your heart's desire, you were from that point on legally married to them. You didn't live together. You were still living separately. But legally you were married. And you confirmed that in front of witnesses and a solemn agreement was made and the terms of the marriage were agreed and solemnly you committed yourselves to each other as a husband and wife. So much so that if by any chance it was not going to work out, you had to get a bill of divorce to separate once you'd been betrothed. It was that solemn and final. That's why we read at the Christmas time of Mary and Joseph. They were betrothed but when there was this suggestion, when Joseph realized that Mary was pregnant and, f- and thought initially that she'd been unfaithful to him, he was going to have to write out a bill of divorce. Do you remember that? They weren't actually living together as man and wife yet, and yet a divorce would have still been necessary. So this is the second stage that we're looking at, the stage of betrothal as far as the bride and groom are concerned, a very solemn, serious stage, a final stage. Now, I want to suggest to you that the next phrase in our verses here fits comfortably into this picture of a bride who is betrothed to her husband. Because it says, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy. The word holy in the New Testament means separated set apart. It means one who has been drawn aside from everyone else and separated to belong to someone alone. That's a holy people. A holy people is a different people, a distinctive people, 
people who can be distinguished from others. That is what the word holy means in the New Testament. And after all, that's what happened at betrothal, didn't it? At betrothal, a man took this young lady of his heart's desire from the others and she was set apart to be his. Nobody else's. She wasn't free any longer. She wasn't single any longer. She couldn't play the field any longer. Her own decisions weren't relevant any longer because she now was committed to one person. She was separated. The groom desiring a bride of his very own, not to be shared with others. Who wants to share uh, your partner with others? Nobody. He separates this young lady for his very own at betrothal. And that is what has been done to the church. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That's the romance, the wooing stage. Wooing with the love of the cross. And here is the betrothal stage. To make her his own. To make her holy. Now the word holy means more than just different. It means distinctively different in a godlike sense. There was no way that the Lord Jesus could take a dirty, unwilling, immoral young lady to be his bride. And so, in drawing aside this people to be his very own bride, his very own partner, the Lord Jesus Christ, by the cross, by the blood that was shed on the cross, changes the hearts of those people who become his bride changes the hearts of those people who become his very own people and all the guilt and all the sin and all the corruption of their past life everything in us that we are utterly ashamed of when the light of God shines on our life is dealt with by the cross by that love of Christ giving himself up for us and the righteousness of the Lord Jesus and a new heart a new creation comes to pass in uh, the experience of those who are set apart to be the people of God. In the New Testament, this is often referred to as being justified. Justification by faith. In other words, God, despite all the evidence, despite all the past of our lives, reckons us, because of Jesus' death on the cross, reckons us and declares us to be righteous, declares us to be forgiven, declares us to be acceptable in his sight. So that is the second stage, the stage of betrothal. A wonderful stage. We now are the people of God. Nothing can change that. He makes us into be his very own people. Now the question that we need to keep asking ourselves as the church who are betrothed to Christ who belong to him, who have been separated is, how distinctive and different do we really appear in our lives today, in society today? I think that really is at the heart of lots of people's disquiet and questions about the recent business of the synod of the Church of England. Now, the focus was on the Church of England on that occasion, but it might have been on other branches or areas of those who claim to be the church. And people are asking, is the church any different anyway? Or are they just the same as everybody else? Is there something about this people that is distinctive? 
Is there a different standard that permeates through this people? Or are they really, after all, just holding, embracing the standards that all the rest of the world embrace anyway? Sadly, many people have concluded from this latest episode that the church, as they perceive it, that's how they see the church, the institution, really are just a bunch of compromises after all. They're not different after all. Their standards are no different. They worm their way through with clever words and phrases, but in the end, in the final analysis, it all boils down to the fact that they're accepting the standards that the world accepts. And so we're no different. Now that's one example of it. But we, dear people of God, are a different, a holy, a distinctive people. We need to show that we belong to the living God and that belonging to him means that our standards are different, our values are different, the way we think through issues are different. The way we will think through an issue like the abortion issue is different from the world's way because our values come from the word of God and the standards of the word of God. The way I believe that we address our minds to even the issue, the nuclear issue should show that we are the people of God. Now these are big subjects and they're subjects that we've dealt with in seminars in the last year. But I'm simply saying to you that if we are the holy, distinctive people of God, then that should be evident by our lives, by our values, by everything about us. People ought not to be able to just say that we blend in with everybody else. There should be something wonderfully distinctive about us. Let's ask ourselves about that as we are the church distributed through the week. You see, we're not just the church and we gather in a Manor Hall school or in Hove Town Hall or the Odeon. That's not just when we're the church in Brighton and Hove. We're the church when we're in the home, in the college, in the school, at work. We're still the church then. And are we distinctive? Are we different? Is there something about us that marks us out as the people of God, God having changed us and started something wonderful in us? We're betrothed to the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's move on to the third stage. The third stage as far as marriage was concerned in New Testament times, was the preparation stage. We've talked about the romance, and here is the most wonderful romance of all, that Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. We've looked at the betrothal stage, that uh, he wanted to make her holy, but now the preparation stage, cleansing her by the washing with water, through the word. Now the preparation stage basically was that between betrothal and the wedding feast was an interval of time, obviously the same as engagement to our own marriage ceremony. Though legally husband and wife, not living together, so a, <coughs> a time for working through faithfulness, keeping oneself pure, a time for developing relationship with one another, planning for the wedding day itself but more than that it's possible to plan for the wedding day but not to be planning for the life beyond the wedding day planning for the life beyond the wedding day and that was what took place it was a time of preparation between betrothal and the actual wedding day itself 
I believe that the church is in this stage now. The church throughout the world, the church in this locality, is in the preparation stage. God, by his Holy Spirit, is preparing his church to be his bride for all eternity. That's what he's doing. He is actually preparing us now to be a wonderful bride, to be devoted to him, and for us and him to enjoy forever. We're in the preparation stage. And the phrase that the Apostle Paul uses of this preparation stage is the word cleansing. That's what God is doing in this interval before the actual wedding day. He is cleansing us. We're his already. There's no doubt about that. Because betrothal was legal. You are husband and wife already. But this is a time of wonderful preparation. And there's something continuous in this phrase that the Apostle uses about cleansing us. It's something ongoing in mind. Not only has the Lord Jesus Christ justified us by faith, reckoned us to be righteous and accepted, but also he now begins to what the New Testament calls sanctify us. It's a process. It's not just some switch that is flicked and suddenly you're holy. It is a process that God by his spirit starts to cleanse his people. It's not just cleansing from the past because that's already been dealt with on the cross when you are made righteous by God. But it is actually now dealing with the root of that with the tendency to sin, the pollution that comes from sin, the power of sin over us. Little by little, God starts to cleanse and to sanctify and to separate us and to free us from that kind of dominion. Cleansing her by the water, by the, by the washing with water through the word. The idea of washing brings to mind the idea of baptism, doesn't it? Baptism being that signal of Christ having forgiven us, having been washed of all our sins, being united with Christ, having been put to death with him, but rising again to new life. The word washing brings that to mind. But notice that the word that, that Paul uses as the key word for this preparation stage of the church is that we are washed with water through the word. Now I want to try and get this over because I feel that this is so vital for us, something that's very vital for us as a church still today, that we understand this, that God wants to prepare us more and more to be his holy bride, a pure bride. We're in this preparation stage, but one of the keys that he does that by is the word. The word of God, the revealed word of God, and that primarily, still today, however we long for prophecy and enjoy prophecy, however much we may enjoy the fact that God still speaks in a living, relevant way, in a now way, through prophetic utterance, nevertheless, it is still the revealed, written word of God in Scripture that he prepares his people by. Because prophetic words have to be measured by the Scriptures. Nothing that comes through in prophecy... Uh, can uh, cut across the word of God in scripture and I want to emphasize this again because it is so very very important if we are going to be a church Clarendon church who are constantly being prepared to be more and more the bride that is fit for God 
to be able to enjoy Christ to all eternity, then we must be cleansed by the word. Now, let me just show that through history. As far as the church universal is concerned, through the centuries, it has been the times when the word of God has come again in all its freshness and been rediscovered that the church has been cleansed of impurity and begun to grow. In the 16th century, Reformation, that was true. The church in that day was corrupt. People were pretending that they could sell, in exchange for money, entrance into heaven. That was what priests and church leaders were pretending. And in the 16th century, men like Luther began to rediscover the scriptures, the word of God. And they began to believe them and teach them. And people began to embrace them instead of these false ideas. And the church was purged. There was a cleansing. It wasn't complete, but it was a vital stage because it was the word of God that was cleansing the church. The same was true in the 18th century in what's sometimes referred to as the Great Awakening. In this, in this country, in the ministries of people like Jonathan Edwards, George Whitfield, and uh, John Wesley. And again, society was corrupt. We sometimes think that because Wesley and Whitfield got thousands in the open air listening to them, it must have been a very religious time, a very religious generation. It wasn't. All the history books tell us that that generation was worse than the generation we are living in. For idolatry, for people um, not wanting anything to do with the Christian faith, for uh, terrible uh, sin in society and corruption and injustice in society. It was a terrible time, a degrading time. And yet, when these men rediscovered the power of the Word of God and began to preach it, and people began to come under the, the hearing of it, things happened. The church began to be built again. There was growth. There was a separating of what was pure and what was impure. And the church was cleansed. And there was a great time of growth. I believe that's what's happened in our own lifetime, in this outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Because one of the things that had happened over the previous years was there'd been a great swing <coughs> in the 19th century. There was a period of liberalism reacting to new scientific discoveries. The church had begun to retreat into liberalism, saying that lots of the word of God wasn't true. And then we came into a period in the middle of this century uh, where <coughs> that was rejected by a large part of the Christian church. Excuse me, I'm losing my voice. <coughs> Excuse me. And uh, there was an ultra-orthodox kind of uh, stance where people were very tenaciously holding on to the Word of God, but in doing so, only parts of the Word of God. Many of those who were most uh, um, ardent in holding to the Word of God, in reacting against liberalism, only held to parts of it. They still said that lots of it weren't relevant to our generation. So actually they were doing the same as the liberals, only from a different motivation and a different standpoint. One of the things that's happened in the last 20 years is in this outpouring of the Holy Spirit, lots of the Word of God have been reclaimed. When I first became a Christian, I was taught that baptism in the Holy Spirit wasn't for today. That just happened at the beginning of the church's history. When I first became a Christian, I was taught that you couldn't really pray for miracles to happen because that only happened in the first two centuries. 
you couldn't really uh, believe that uh, people would manifest gifts of the Holy Spirit in worship because that was just in the beginning in the early church now we had to be content with a call to worship a hymn a prayer a reading another hymn another prayer another reading the notices another hymn a sermon and then a hymn at the end but actually over the last 20 years the word of God's been rediscovered we're finding actually that there's so much more in the word of God that we can receive and that is for our building up as a church and that cleanses us. Isn't that wonderful? You see, the preparation stage, the vital key is the word of God. Now, there are other things that the, the, the Lord uses to cleanse his church. Sometimes it is persecution. Sometimes affliction uh, purifies the church. But they are not the primary means of God cleansing and preparing his church. The primary means is the word of God. Now, I want to bring that nearer at home to a local church. We've talked about the church universal there, but it's true of the local church as well. If we, as Clarendon Church, are going to be more and more prepared as the bride of Christ, and more and more of his glory and his splendor shine through, then it must be allowing the word of God to cleanse us and to build us up. Now, that is vital, and we must never, ever lose that. I was delighted this morning in our worship that we had several readings from the Scriptures. I detect sometimes in charismatic meetings where the gifts of the Spirit are flowing and people are bringing words of knowledge and prophetic utterances and sharing testimonies, that sometimes you can even get to the stage where when a passage of Scripture is read, people just say, okay, but let's get to the next gift of the Spirit, please. Never, ever get into that attitude. Never. Please. When somebody brings a reading from the Scriptures, it should be a wonderful moment. Really. And during the week, if God burns a scripture into your heart, a verse, a passage, or carry that with you to Sunday, because it might be that God's wanting you to read that on Sunday morning. And that can be such a rich blessing to other people. That's something, you know, that all of us can wait on God about. It may be that God hasn't really stirred in us a desire to prophesy on a Sunday morning or, or to bring some other gift of the Spirit. But not one of us is unable to bring a simple verse of Scripture that God has laid in our heart. And that can do so much for everybody. Please never despise that. Similarly, when people do bring prophetic utterances, it ought never to be a surprise to us if lots of prophetic utterances are filled with Scripture verses. That's good. When you look at prophecy in the New Testament, it was often filled with Old Testament quotations. It is perfectly natural. And the more that our hearts and minds are filled with the word of God, the more likely we are able to bring a prophetic utterance with real substance and real weight. Something that can really make an impact. I would say the same, too, very lovingly, to many people um, about their own personal lives. If we are going to be a church that's built up and strong, then we need to rediscover personal Bible study and group Bible study. Now, I know that our care groups have other dynamics that are important. And when we come in our care groups, it's not primarily as Bible study groups. But I suggest to you that in twos and threes, as friends, we can get together, and I know our women have done this to great profit in the last uh, few months, and study the Word of God together. Let me tell you that there are many Christians 
who would not continually be needing counselling if they only got the word of God into their hearts and minds. That is true. Sometimes we're always needing prayer and ministry and counselling when really what we do need is the solid, feeding, edifying word of God into our minds and our hearts. And it's because some people will not do that that they're always needing counselling and ministry and help. Now that's not minimising that some people have very deep and real problems that need help and prayer. We're not minimising that need. We still need to be sensitive before God. But listen, we need to rediscover what it means to feed on the Word of God. And the more we do, the more we grasp some of the great truths of Scripture, of what God has done for us, of who we are in Christ, of our standing in Jesus now, the more we will be lifted above so many things that at the moment drag us down easily. Let me say something else. You might grin when I say this, but okay, I'm going to say it all the same. I accept sometimes that there is a place for joking with a preacher about the length of his sermon. I think sometimes we do go on too long. It may be I'm going to go on too long this morning. But let me say this. Please never get it into your heart or mind that the sermon or the preaching of the word is something to get over as quickly as possible. It is vital that we see what a privilege it is that we have to sit under the ministry of, of preaching and teaching from the Word of God. Uh, I say this very lovingly to you, that recently I've preached in churches, Baptist churches and denominational churches, where there is often a much greater hunger for the Word of God than I've sensed in our own fellowship. Now, I don't say that to condemn you, but I say it because I'm aware that sometimes we can have such privilege of sitting under the ministry of really fine Bible teachers and preachers that we can get blasé about it. I tell you, if once a month some of the churches I visited had the privilege of sitting under Terry Virgo's ministry, they would never ever miss a celebration. But some of us do very easily. We're blasé about it. It's a mighty privilege for God to have raised up in our midst such mighty ministries Let's never lose that. God prepares, builds up, cleanses his church to be a wonderful bride, and he does it primarily through his word, and his word burns into our hearts, and his word prepares us. His word strengthens those areas of weakness. It's his word again and again. Let's never miss that. The last few days, I've had to stay in the home because I had a virus. And I should have been a praying fasting on Thursday and I perhaps should have been in the office on Friday. But instead I've just been in the home and I was able to work quietly and read and pray quietly in the home. And over those days God showed me that over these last few months I had failed him by not giving myself enough to the study of the word and to prayer. You see, there are all sorts of things involved now in being an elder in Clarendon Church. All sorts of things that are good and right and needful for building a local church. And again, I don't despise those things. But what I've found is that in the readjustment that's been necessary to embrace those things, I have not given the time to study of the Word of God, to prepare for preaching, but also just to build my own spirit up. I've not given the time that I should have given. And it's taken a few days just being set aside for God to address me about that. And I've got to think that through. I've got to be much more disciplined now in the weeks that come and the months that come. 
about the time that I used to set aside. When I was a Baptist pastor, every morning I set aside for the study of God's word. And uh, only an emergency could get me in a morning on the telephone. Because that was priority number one. And that came out in my ministry. That meant that I was much more effective when I counseled one-to-one or when I was in a small group situation. And very soon we find that we're struggling. You'll find that, I find that, in trying to minister to others when we haven't spent the time, the quality time that we need to in the Word of God. So if I'm bringing you an exhortation this morning that's got an edge to it, I bring it because God has first brought it to me. And God has shown me my need again to address that in my own life, lest I be guilty of preaching to others, but end up being a hypocrite. The last stage, and we'll be much briefer here, I promise you, is the wedding stage. Wonderful, wonderful stage. The day when uh, the groom collects the bride from her home. She's adorned in her wonderful, beautiful wedding dress, and there's a joyful procession that goes back to the wedding feast. And Paul says that uh, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. When Jesus returns, and he will, when he returns... He will bestow upon his church a glorious wedding dress that will have absolutely no blemish to it, no stain. And he will give to his people a freshness and a newness and a youth that is not marred by any wrinkle or any blemish. And he will make his church utterly, gloriously perfect. Now, I emphasize that that will happen on that day. The mistake we can make sometimes is thinking this. We are into restoration now, the restoration of New Testament Christianity to be a beautiful bride ready for Jesus' coming. The mistake we can sometimes make is the idea that we're going to now get a little bit more perfect every day until we're perfect enough for Jesus to return and we're fit for him. That is not New Testament teaching. The three stages we've seen in betrothal, cleansing, and now wedding are these in New Testament doctrine terms. Justification, being reckoned to be right, to reckon to be holy, betrothed to, to Christ. Secondly, sanctification, the process of cleansing, so that more and more of the glory and the image of Jesus is seen in us. Yes, we're getting more and more beautiful, more and more pure, more and more full of the Lord Jesus. But there's a third stage. And the New Testament teaches about the stage of what it calls glorification. And that is something that he alone bestows upon his church when he returns. Yes, there will be more and more glory in the church as he restores more and more to the church. But it will not be until he returns and he bestows on his church the perfection of glory that we will be what this description is gives us here, present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. Some of you might have been at the Downs wedding, not this year, last year, when Paul and Amanda were married, and uh, two, three thousand people there as uh, 
Amanda came down the aisle onto the platform and she looked gorgeous. She was a lovely looking girl and she was beautiful. And the crowds roared and they stood on their chairs and they clapped and they shouted. Do you remember those of you who were there? It was totally exhilarating. And that gives us just a faint glimpse of the exhilaration of heaven when the glorious perfected church returns to the wedding feast, the wedding banquet, the groom having come to collect his bride and he returns with his glorious, beautiful, radiant, perfect bride into the halls of heaven. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and like loud peals of thunder shouting, Hallelujah! For our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints. Then the angel said to me, Right, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. What a love story, eh? Romance, betrothal, preparation, but what a glorious wedding day awaits us as the Bride of Christ. Let's all stand.